Hey, it's me, Tim Ranzetta, co-founder of NextGen Personal Finance. Thank you for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. Today on the show, we are going to hear from Amy Hollins. Amy, I became aware of Amy reading a book called The Bogle Effect, where it highlighted the role that Amy played in getting Jack Bogle, who was the founder of Vanguard, to get him to share his insights by writing books. She persuaded him to write the first book, Bogle on Mutual Funds, and that was the start of a literary career. I think Bogle ended up writing 14 or 15 books. But Amy is fascinating in the role that she played, not only in that book, but also writing a bio about Charles Schwab, Chuck Schwab, who revolutionized the brokerage business after some major deregulation occurred in the 1970s. And then she also worked alongside Jeremy Siegel, who's a professor at Wharton, who has written several editions of a book called Stocks for the Long Run. So she has fascinating insights, having worked with these titans in the investing world. She's going to share that, uh, as well as what, yeah, what she learned along the way, too. So without further ado, Amy Hollins. So the way I found out about Amy, and Amy, you can correct me here if this is not a true statement, but uh, we actually had our first author's corner. We had an author named Eric Balkunis who wrote a book called The Bogle Effect. And it was in that book, somewhere tucked away deep into the book, there was a story. And I just thought the story was that Jack Bogle didn't, Jack Bogle, who's the founder of Vanguard, and I'll let Amy kind of introduce him. He was late to the game in terms of writing books. And it turned out the person who made or persuaded him to write his first book is with us tonight, Amy Hollins. Amy, welcome. Well, thank you. I I mean, Tim, when you called me, gosh, several months ago, I was so honored and, you know, really um, taken by surprise that, you know, that you've Un- uncovered that kernel of a story in the mi- in the back of the book, actually, and um, and uh, I, w- I was just really honored and excited about the work you're doing, and excited about the group that you have assembled of you know these incredible educators doing so, you know following up and making sure that young young students, young people, um, have the have the skills and, and the information they need to make good decisions to 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 be better citizens, to be better stewards of their own, you know, their own fortune. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really honored by the work you do and to be included here. So thank you. All right. So I'm going to read, this is something I pulled from his book. And so bear with me, folks, but this is going to give you a little bit of the backstory. So this is, again, Jack Bogle, founder of Vanguard Investments. This is back in the late 80s, early 90s. He hadn't written a book at that point. His first book was called Bogle on Mutual Funds. So here's what he said. The very existence of Bogle on Mutual Funds depended largely on some remarkable persistence, first by Amy Hollins, then senior editor for Irwin Professional Publishing. Amy stopped in at my Valley Forge office in November 1990, told me that Irwin was eager to publish a book aimed at helping mutual fund investors achieve their financial goals. Based on her numerous high-level contacts around the financial community, she reported almost every person with whom she discussed the need for a solid book on mutual funds had suggested that I should be the author. Oh, you knew how to appeal to a man's ego, didn't you? Uh, (laughs) Thanks, Amy, but maybe later. 
I told her. For at that time, I was quite overwhelmed with the task of building Vanguard, the fun complex I founded in 1974, beginning with some $1.4 billion of investor assets and managing the explosive growth that would carry our assets to more than $100 billion by 1993. At that time, we had just begun to emerge as an industry leader. Cash flow from net investments by shareholders had been growing at 20% annually for a decade. I'd love to do it, and I know that I can do it, I told her, but right now I can't possibly find the time to write a book. So Amy came back a year later with the same plea, and again, and then again a year after that, when she dropped by in the spring of 1992, however, what was the however? What was going on in the spring of 92? Um, he uh, he had some some serious health concerns. Um, he he was diagnosed with a heart defect, I think. Um, and, and I think he might have actually even suffered a heart attack. And then they uncovered some heart problems. So he he realized like he. He felt, okay, and this is 92, and he didn't pass away until, I want to say, 2018? 18 or 19, yeah. Yeah, so, I, I mean, it, it, he lived quite a long time after that, but he felt like that his, his you know, that the, the clock was running, and that if he, and, you know, he had built Vanguard to a certain degree that he felt like he could step back, Um the the senior management and the the trustees all sort of thought that he um that he should should take a step back and he felt his health was was um declining and his wife who was lovely also said you know jack i i think you shouldn't work so hard so a lot of you know it was kind of a perfect storm and he just said okay maybe this is the time from for me to write the book so your mandate is you know you're with Irwin professional publishing mm -hmm. and your mandate was to go find some folks so we can get some investing books out there right was that kind of yeah and I mean for the the folks on the call I and I you know I don't know you know I, I want to just kind of give you a refresher on what was going on um and the reason why I had this mandate so um in 1975, there was deregulation um, in the financial markets. And so basically, um, the SEC said that um, that there was deregulation and that, um, that the fees um, brokers charged were, were to be negotiated, not fixed. Yep. So that means that there was a competition. And that um, people like Charles Schwab, and we'll get to him in a second, were was the first to say, okay, well, they're going to be negotiated, and you know, Dean Witter is charging, you know, like eight percent a trade. I'm going to charge one point five percent a trade, and and make up the difference in volume. And this was a big deal, because up until that point in time, the average investor couldn't afford to spend eight percent of whatever their net gain is. If you have to remember that like the average over time, if you read another book that I published by Jeremy Siegel, the average return over a period of time is, you know, in the, in the equities market is about 10 to 12%. So if you're coughing up 8%, and I might be wrong on the fees, but 
you, you get the gist that the net you have to have a, a strong net gain on your investments in order to have and make a difference to have the stockbroker manage your money. So the average investor with a thousand dollars, it didn't make any sense. So for that deregulation opened up the floodgates for people to start investing in the equity market for the average investor. And this is 1975. Really, it's, it was a, a, a huge shift. Also in that period of time, um, interest rates, we all might remember this, I don't know. Um, interest rates were bananas in the, in the 70s and 80s. And they, I think it went up to 20% in 1981. And so if, if interest rates were at 20% and the stock market's yielding 10% and you can get 20% or you know 18% on a certificate of deposit, why be in the, in the equities market to begin with, right? But in the 80s, um, or like by 1990, the interest rates dropped precipitously um, due to you know the Federal Reserve action. So it was a, it was a the perfect storm. So it became cheaper and more efficient to invest in the equities market, and it was a a, a much more solid option alternative to any kind of cash reserve or particularly the bond market. So suddenly stocks were on fire. Equities were on fire. Everyone wanted in. But whenever there's a big market, whether it's social media, whether it's, you know, the bubble, the stock, you know, whatever the bubble was, there's an opportunity for, for people to get fleeced. And so there became this new market for an, or need for investors to be informed. And so Irwin Professional Publishing was an offshoot of a textbook publisher called Richard D. Irwin, which published a lot of really seminal textbooks in um, economics and finance. And we were, we were really a, a niche publisher only in business. And we, but we had a really super solid Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Wharton, all the, you know, the main economic and finance professors in these big business schools and economic schools were our authors. So the professional line, we had a really, um, had a, a, um, a patina of, of um, authority, even though we were really teeny tiny. And I was able to leverage, you know, so there were some people that, you know, through the connections of the textbook market that knew Jack Bogle, knew some of the other players in the market. And so I was, you know, I was able to leverage my, um, you know, that kind of, you know, the, the, the prestige of the, the, the uh, publishing company. So, so all of these things were kind of happening. And I was like, at nothing. I knew nothing. I was an economics major. I was 24 years old. Um, they said, you know, Amy, it, it's you, you got to go, 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 go get the top minds in the industry. People are dying for good information um, in order to invest in the equity market. And we have to be first, first out of the gate and it has to be good stuff. You know, we can't publish just rubbish. So there's there's a big stake um, on my head. Um, so one of the first books I published was with Charles Schwab. So um, and he was very interesting, a visionary in the in the um, in the in the investing world 
because he was the first one to see the opportunity to really bring in the average everyday person to invest in the stock market and by by being the low cost provider. And, you, you know, he really changed the industry. Um, so he he wrote a book with us. It was interesting because it was very it was not well known at the time that he was extraordinarily dyslexic. And so he couldn't write the book. Um, so I worked with his uh, chief of staff, whose name was Hugo Quackenbush. And if you Google him, you can see that he was like Charles is, um, you know, Chuck's best friend from day one. And so Hugo Quackenbush and a ghostwriter and I sat in a hotel for about three weeks and wrote, got the book written according to what Chuck wanted it done or said. So um, that was the first book. And that kind of also opened the door for Jack Bogle. So, yeah, and I think it was just tenacity, Tim, you know, like I just kept, I'm like, you know, he's the guy, Jack Bogle is the one that is like Charles Schwab was a revolutionary in the equity market, allowing people to have discounted trading. Jack Bogle is the one that said in mutual funds, so that was a new concept too, mutual funds were not. I mean, actually, Tim, you would probably know better. I don't remember when the mutual fund industry kind of exploded. I want to say it was the 70s when it was deregulated. So the mutual funds gave um, investors a unique opportunity to to hold shares in lots of different companies at a very low cost level by just having a small share in a mutual fund, right? It's a mutually... They aggregate all the investment funds together. And so people can get a little share of Xerox. They can get a little share of IBM. They can get a little share of this, that, and the other thing. And um, and so mutual funds became like also very, very popular. But again, people are getting fleeced by these high fees and didn't realize it. And so Jack, like like Charles Schwab said, this isn't going to work because, you know, he knew the he knew the math that your, your returns your net returns have to keep track with the market. So if your net returns, meaning your return minus the fees that you're getting charged are below the return on the standard standard pours at the time, it was, you know, S&P was, you know, that was the, the benchmark. Um, you're, you're losing money. And so in, in that really graded on Jack Bogle. Like he was, he was just a, a man with a, a very principled man and, um, and it just graded on him. And so this book really was a good way to explain why he started Vanguard. And I, I have a copy of the book here to show you. So this is what it looks like. The original cover. I don't know if you can see it. My lighting isn't great. And the funny thing is he insisted on this red cover and you can't see, but it's like cardinal red. And um, in publishing in investments, you can imagine you never publish, you know, red is not a good luck color in investing. And he insisted on it. And and I almost lost my job because I I was his spokesperson and they're like, you know, Amy, no, this is really, this is, you're gonna, you're, you're, you're gonna, this book is gonna be a disaster and it's gonna be on your head. And I'm like, but he's Jack Bogle, and he, what can I say? So, um, but in the end, he won. Jack won, and we this book was published. Bogle on mutual funds. Oh, maybe that's a better lighting. 
And then we also published um, the Vanguard experiment after that, which was more of a management kind of, you know, um, book that kind of explained how he started the company and what he had to do to um, get alignment and get consensus. Um, so, yeah, like that's um, that's sort of the the story of of how it came about. That's awesome. Um, can we go back? I'd love to learn a little bit more about Schwab, you know, because. 1975 deregulation suddenly commissions are no longer fixed they're floating and kind of there must have been dozens of schwabs that came into the marketplace why did any sense why he won um was it a marketing like he was able to market hey because i mean i just think about his marketing when i first started as an investor and it was very much like i'm looking out very similar to bogle like i want dirt cheap commissions so you to protect that individual investor. Like, as you think about the book itself mm -hmm. and his philosophy, you know, why did he win? Why is he one of the survivors 40 years, you know, 40, geez, that was 75, yeah, 47 years later. Yeah, um, we, and I remember those commercials too. He had a, a blue button down Oxford shirt and he had his sleeves rolled up, do you remember? Yeah. And that was, that was calculated. I'm right? working for you. I'm working for you. He was anti-Wall Street. So he started, I, this is my guess in, um, in my hunch is that he, he's, he's a San Francisco guy. He was anti-Wall Street. He was anti-Brooks Brothers suit. He, you know, he had rolled up sleeves. Um, he didn't have the pinstripe bankers suit. Um, and, and so there was something, he, he's, he's very boyish looking like a youthful and with a lot of integrity. And he, um, he was also, I think, and, and Tim, I don't know, you're a California guy too, but I think there was something about, he was a face. You had JP Morgan, you had Dean Witter, you had Lehman brothers, you had Pierce, Fenner and Smith. They were conglomerates. There was no face to it. So people didn't know who the man was, you know, who is the man behind my investments? Well, it's a bunch of, and I it kind of makes me think of, um, oh, do you remember the movie Mary Poppins when they were like, you know, the, all the bankers were sitting around a big boardroom and toppins for the, you know, like, you know, get it in the bank. And I think Charles Schwab was just a, he wasn't a regular guy. He didn't say he was a regular guy, but he was anti Wall Street, and so he he and um, and, um, and, and and you know was able to um, embody trust. I guess. What do you think? Why do you think he had legs? Yeah, no, I think I think you're exactly right. He personalized uh, Wall Street's faceless, and you can go throughout history, and yeah. Wall Street is you know constantly demonized for from cultural perspective and so he was not that guy um right. and then i think he clearly must have gotten the operations right so i'm sure you know because if you're gonna drive commissions down you better have an operating model that so he probably benefited from being on the west coast from a technology perspective so he was probably yeah. early you know the, the financial service firms usually are the leaders when it comes to technology he probably had an advantage being out here that he thought that way and probably had a great operations person. Right, uh, I think you're right. I, I do remember him talking about the back office. Yeah, which is not sexy in any way, except it drives your, helps you drive your costs down. His his daughter actually is a phenomenal advocate 
uh, Carrie Schwab Pomerantz in the financial literacy space. So she's kind oh. of carrying his mantle forward and does uh, the Schwab Foundation does some really good work um, and now also galvanize thousands of their volunteers, you know, thousands of their employees to go in and volunteer. Um, so that's an interesting, um, she's carried the mantle. Yeah, that's that's really wonderful to hear. And I mean, for the for the audience, for this group, you know, I, I mean, again, I was just a 24 year old. I was just kind of like the right place, right time. But I think for young people who. You know, I mean, for for any of us that were young from the 1970s now, we that's all we've ever known is a stock market. And, you know, there's been recessions. But once those interest rates came down in the in 1990, there's been no looking back. There's been some, you know, the 2008. There's been some bear markets, but it's really been on the aggregate and overall climb. Um, and, and but things are a little different. They're a little tenuous now, and I think young people are a little um, uncertain. And you know, I think that the 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 lesson that I pulled out of all of this is that there are always going to be great innovations and to, to be educated and to know your stuff and to be able to ask the right questions and have strong financial literacy and have strong understanding of the financial markets to know when to shift. I mean, are we moving into a bond era? You know, bond investing is something that really no one really knows much about for the last 30 years because we haven't really, it's been a weak market. So who's, who's talking about the bond market and, and, and what do we need to know? Um, and so, so this is just kind of a, it's, it's an interesting thing for you as educators to, to have this topic because really it was a moment of change in 1990 when we published these books. And I think we're we're entering into another moment of change with with interest rates going up, um, and the equity markets being kind of in, you know, taking some hits. Yeah, and I'm, it was funny. I was thinking about 1975, and I was thinking we hit a similar uh, point, you know, in 2016, 2017, when we suddenly had zero commission. So now we go from, hey, guess what? You don't even have to pay 4.95 for a trade. Right. You get everything for free. And I wish there was a Jack Bogle you know, because a lot of folks who weren't schooled in the markets got schooled in the markets um, because right. you online platforms that suddenly it's not about education. It's about gamifying. We're going to make this fun for you. So we're going to trade crypto and we're going to trade options and we're going to load up on margin and borrow money to buy stocks. And this is brilliant. And, and everybody's a genius when money's free. And it was free for a very long time because interest rates were zero. But now, you know, you just had... Now, the, the good news is the largest online broker, the median size in my account was 250 bucks. And so the lesson was painful, but hopefully, you know, because you just, you can't make money in that marketplace. So what happened was the market moved so quickly to zero commission. It's the market was rising. Everybody got sucked into it. And now we're going through a really painful correction. And I hope, I hope lessons were learned. Not that I'm never going to invest again, because this is a scam. But boy, I would have learned more about what it means to be a long-term investor, because I think that's, you probably heard that a lot from Jack Bogle, long-term, long-term, long-term. Well, and actually one of the other books, not to like, I just had this great fun. You have to tell me the name of the Schwab book, actually, because I well, didn't. And stocks for a long, long run. 
Okay, so seminal book by Jeremy Siegel. Um, he's a Wharton professor, and um, what he was saying is, uh, so this is so there was a little tumultuousness in the in the '90s. The stock market was kind of flying around a bit, and his point, and, and he's again, he's a professor. He's a he's a data professor. He's a, he's just a darling, wonky man. But you know, he he's not like he, he uh, you know, he he he's not. Um, uh, you know, he's not a pundit. And what he was saying is you, you've got to stay in the market. Don't just try to time the market. And at the time, again, timing the market to your point, Tim, you know, you can time the market now if you've got zero commission um, fees. But at the time, if you try to time the market, it was really, um, uh, you know, it was, it was costly. And he's like, just stay your course. Pick your, pick your, and, and that really lined up well with what Jack Bogle was, because he's actually the father of the index fund too, not just a low cost mutual fund, but really the index fund. You pick stocks that are targeted to the index, as long as you can match the market, don't try to beat it. Don't try to, you know, just match the market. You will win. Um, so uh, sorry, I lost track because I get so excited about Je Jeremy. <laughs> I love that, but um, yeah, I you know, like it's it's about the long term. Yep. Let's hone in on Jack's book then, because okay, you know, I'd love to learn. So he had a heart uh, heart replacement, right? I mean, he had a pretty serious. Oh yeah, he had open heart. That's right. That's yeah. what it was. He had, so he yeah, was there... living on borrowed time. So this idea that he had that in 1992 and lived till 2017, 2018, and and stayed busy. You know, from all accounts, he, you saw him a lot on CNBC. He would continue to write books, so he was incredibly active. But yeah, just talk about his book is full of charts. It's full of like. What are the, anytime somebody's writing for the first time, right? There, there's a, okay, this is what I got in my head. And then you're representing the reader saying, Jack, I don't know if this is the right, like what kind of feedback did you have to give him? And how did that all work? Man, <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, I have to tell you, I was like, I was young and I'm, I'm petite, you know, and he's six, I don't know, like he was six, four. And he was a craggy old, you know, but elegant, an elegant man and so outspoken. And, you know, from, for him to even take any feedback from me was like a, a testament to his um, character. Um, and he's a father, I think he had six kids. And, uh, and he also had a bunch of, um, he was really close in his family, his, his niece, I knew his niece and like, um, he was a family man and he was respectful of young people. And, and, and I think that that served me, but, um, um, yeah, he, 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 you know, he would, he would, he would pull a little bit of pompeity. Like he would say, oh, or pump, is that the right word? Pompousness. Um, and, and he would say, well, you know, Amy, I'm to a manner born. In other words, you know, I'm blue blood, I'm prep school. And, yeah, you know, in today's world, that's hard to hear, you know, and we, we really want a lot of inclusion. We want thoughts from all sides of every part of the spectrum. But, but at the time, that's kind of where he was thinking, you know, that that 
entitled him to have the final word. And um, and that was hard because I had to convey to him, like, then if you're the two men are born, then you don't know who's investing in Topeka, Kansas. And that was my job to report to him who pe what people in Topeka, Kansas need to know. And to say that he was out of reach, um, that was a hard, it was a hard message to, to deliver. So um, I had to fall on my sword a couple of times, but he had a right-hand man um, named Jim Morris, Norris, who was um, a gifted writer and a gift, he was his Jack's speech writer and Jim Norris agreed with me. So we kind of double teamed him <laughs> and it, we got it done because we double teamed him and he gave in to us, but he, he was a very, um, uh, stubborn, stubborn guy, you know, I mean, he built in who, I mean, golly, he built it from nothing and he got ousted, right? Like I, when, when the book came out, he was getting pushed out by management. There was a, a bit of a coup, if you will, um, because they felt like he was too old and he was ill and they needed, he needed to release the reins. So, I, I mean, I can only think now as I approach the age he he was at the time like that's hard to the, the 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 hits to his ego were coming fast and furious um and for him to concede the tone you know he it, what he, he he you know he is a princeton man so you know it was written in this high level you know 50 cent word kind of gig and, and we were like you got to you can't say illustrious and you can't say, you know, whatever ephemeral or whatever words he wanted to use. We had to, you know, substitute them a bit. And, um, and you guys, as educators, you all know, like you have a reading level for different books. We had to lower the reading level on the book a bit. And it was, it was hard for him to concede to do that. Um, but again, he, you know, just a gentleman, such a great character that he was willing to trust um that that we had the finger on the pace how much now mutual funds were a relatively new thing i think the other thing that was really driving growth was iras and 401ks suddenly mm -hmm. became apparent that okay pensions are no longer a guarantee so people are going to learn to have to invest on their own but mutual funds in the late 80s early 90s there was how much how did you educate yourself were you learning as you went also or were you just kind of studying at all hours to be like, okay, if I'm going to be matched up with Jack Bogle and write this book with him, mm -hmm. I got to, you know, I got to get up the learning curve. I mean, you, you mentioned you studied economics, so you had some background, some knowledge there, but I wondered what else you felt as a 20 something matched up with this industry Titan. It was so crazy. And, um, and like, I think your educators are doing the same thing. I, you know, I don't know that all of you are financial people, right? Like, and you don't have to be a financial person to know good common sense about being able to sift through good information and, um, you know, you know, not just jumping on whatever Robin Hood is, is putting out there today, you know, what's the stock du jour? You've got to have, you've got to have um, a, a good uh, a contrarian. That's a word that Jack would always use is you have to have a contrarian mindset. Like, all right, what's behind all this? And what are they benefiting from their stock price going up? And and so you, and as educators, you you know that, and you've got to advise your, your um, students on this. So I was the same as all of you. I was in the same boat. So, um, 
it, there was a little company that started in Chicago around the same time, just a grassroots company, a couple of guys with a, you know, a computer and like some old office space. And it was called Morningstar. It was Johnson Masuedo and um, Don Phillips. And I became good friends with them. And they, um, you know, Morningstar now is like, geez, you know, big, but this was bad. I mean, these are the like wild, wild west, I guess. Now I feel like it's kind of funny to talk about it, but yeah, they were just, they had like this, like it was hot. Like they had no air conditioning in their office and all these computers were like these giant, giant computers and they were kicking out heat. And so like if I had a meeting, they'd have to go outside because <laughs> it was so hot. But they got me up to speed a lot on, you know, they, Don Phillips was one of the ones that said, you know, Jack Bogle's the only guy, really. And then there's a guy named Sheldon Jacobs. And there's just a lot of people. And I also, um, you know, I became good friends with certain reporters at the Wall Street Journal, who I, you know, again, they were like beat reporters, like they, you know, the, the, the big guys were, you know, invited to the board meetings at Xerox, but the beat reporters on mutual funds were like nobodies. So if I said, I'll take you out for sushi, tell me what you know, they were, they were all in. Um, and so, you know, it was just kind of more wild, wild west, but I think you, I think we, you, the thing is, is you have to find reliable information, sources of information. And I actually have this argument with my 27 year old son, a lot about politics and whatever. And if you're educators, you're probably talking to the same demographic and you know he'll come back with some like theory that he's read or heard about and I'll say but what is your source and can you give me a counter source or can you give me a secondary source for that and you know in that kind of mindset is is I think what you need to be an informed investor is okay if if you know again if, if some stock is being you know hawked and and, and pushed up you know how many sources are verifying that and and what's your what's your neutral nonpartisan verifying source so um i mean that's just sort of what i did as i was prepping because there was a lot of gosh there was also a lot of people that were trying to get published with books too at the time tim because it was a brand like at the time it was branding right and so um there, there was one woman I tried to get to write a book. Her name was Elaine Zeffirelli. You and I talked about this. And um, for the rest of you, like she was like on the cover of all the magazines and she was like, she was kind of hot stuff, right? Um, and, and you remember better than me, but like she was a, like she, she had like top stock picking that year in 1990. She was the one who called the, before the market busted in 87. She okay. said she made the call. She made the call of a career, right? Like you say, hey, I don't think things are right in September of 1987. The market tanks 22.6% in October. And so she was lying. She made the call of the call of a career. And so that really put right. her and she was a woman on Wall Street, which, you know, you think it's rare today. It was even rarer yeah. back then. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so there was a lot of people that I like was chasing down that I had to kind of pull back on because, you know, are they a one, you know, what's the term like a, a like a, a one hit wonder, you know, um, it, uh, you know, and then there's a lot of, you know, again, there was a lot of like startup brokerage firms start looking the insurance industry was getting into the investments too. annuities were like trying to compete 
And, you know, we had to, like, I had to really do my, I had a reputational um, value of the organization I worked for, my publisher. And, and I had to do my due diligence and figure out who was saying the right thing that we could stand behind as a publisher at the time too. Just like you do as educators, you know, just like you, you know, you, you want to recommend the right books to your students, the right sources of information, because you don't want it coming back on you. Um, and I was, I was in the same boat and I got lucky, you know, I got, I got, I got lucky. I got, I found some really good eggs, Jeremy Siegel, John Bogle, um, Charles Schwab. Uh, there's another one, um, Roger Gibb, Gibson, who um, he, he started the whole concept of asset allocation. Before that, like before 1992, really asset allocation was something that, you know, major pensions talked about. The average investor didn't really talk it. Oh, there it is, Roger Gibson. Um, you know, the, the average investor was, didn't have assets enough to like be able to allocate, you know, 30% to stocks, 40% to bonds or whatever that you have it. And he was the one that was able to inform financial planners how to advise people to do so. Um, so that was another, that was another fantastic really contribution to the field that we were able to publish. Did um, you spend a lot of time with Jack Bogle in these drafting sessions, talking through the books? Did he ever bring to those meetings the upset he was feeling getting ousted? I don't know where that timeline is, where that fits yeah. in, but I can't imagine. I mean, this is a guy who started Vanguard because he got thrown out of another um, mutual fund company Wellington. out of Boston. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he he's had that happened before. But yeah, I wondered if, was he able to compartmentalize like, hey, that's going on in my the management part of my life, but hey, I'm here to write a book. Or did you have conversations about kind of what, what he was going through? Yeah. I, um, he was so dignified. He was so proud. And you know, I guess from my, my sense, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm watching like the show Secession and, you know, like all these, it seems to be, um, you know, something that we all, we love those titans of industry and those, you know, the, the drama behind it. There wasn't that, there wasn't that drama, um, you know, hit, and I don't want to, get into any names because I, you know, I think that they've done a very good job, you know, stewarding um, or navigating, right, Vanguard. Um, but it, you could, you could sense that he was being marginalized. And, um, you know, he still commanded, he was the commander. He still commanded incredible reverence from everyone around him. But he was also sort of like, oh, the old guy, you know, like, oh, when the old guy leaves, like you could just, you could feel like the whispers behind and people, and he knew it. And um, I, I think that he, uh, there was, so the, the book that we're out really where I found that was this one called uh, The Vanguard Experiment. And this is where, um, 
we really kind of got into it with management because they didn't want to call it. So Vanguard was an experiment. He's like, he broke out of this firm, Wellington Capital Management in Boston. And he, he kind of came to heads with the, the, the leadership there and broke out and he started Vanguard. And, and I don't recall the technicalities, nor do I think I'm smart enough to know what the technicalities were. But I, I believe that he felt that they were overcharging. Um, they were overcharging and they were taking advantage of, you know, blind investors that didn't know the difference. Um, and, and he was trying to he was trying to push change on them and they wouldn't change. So he started Vanguard and it was an experiment, just like Charles Schwab was an experiment to go to like these low cost, you know, trades was like he was a laughing stock. He was like, the, the, you know, again, like these old firms like Dean Witter and, you know, like those old Wall Street firms laughed at him. They thought he was just, you know, and Jack was similar, you know, and he was a proud man. And so for him to start Vanguard and do well, you know, and then to be kind of pushed out. So when we did the, this book called The Vanguard Experiment, he was trying to say, look, this is why I started Vanguard. This is the story. And they didn't like that we called it experiment because they they wanted it to, to appear like it had been around forever and it was steadfast and it was reliable, just like, you know, Merrill Lynch. And, and he was like, no, it was an experiment. You know, so his whole, um, you know, he was like iconoclast in his whole, uh, his whole revolutionary visionary thinking, they wanted to kind of gloss over. And he knew that. It, it was hard. It was hard to, to watch that. But again, you know, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to let me feel sorry for him. Again, you had a picture of him spent over hours, probably days. Like what drove him? Why, why was he so headstrong? What was he committed? If you think about what were his core principles, what was he trying to accomplish through Vanguard? He had a pretty healthy sense of ego. And I think he thought he was right. And, and I also think he was, you know, again, he was a bit contrarian. And, and I think he liked to be kind of a rabble rouser as much as he aligned himself with old, you know, old values and things like that. I think he, he liked to, to be the, the visionary, the shakeup. Um, I think he, um, I'm having a loss of words right now, but I, I think he would always say, don't take things for granted. Don't, you know, don't, or don't take things at face value. None of us can like, and I think that that was one of his core values is, is it to always question. And I think he had a a very strong sense of integrity, incredible strong sense, incredibly strong um, sense of integrity um, for what's right. And, um, extraordinarily loyal. Um, I mean, he and Warren Buffett were very good friends. 
Burton Melchior, John Neff, like these were the old guys, like that's similar to Warren Buffett, you know, like that similar kind of um, depression era, you know, you, 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 you plan your work, you work your plan, you stick to it, you stay with it, but don't ever take your eye off the ball and don't expect anyone or don't trust that anyone else got your back. And I think that that's sort of, um, I think that's sort of what drove him. I don't know. What's your sense? You, you've done some research on him and what did I, I, I don't remember what, um, uh, Eric said in his book, what did he say drove him? I think he loved to be loved. And they talked about how he would go. And now I want to thank you, Amy, for, uh, for taking the time to share with us and take us, you know, give us some insights into, you know, three people who were really important to the current financial markets that we're in, t- in today and probably responsible for as much as anyone responsible for our ability to buy these great products at very low cost. Right. And, and, and do, do the good fight. I mean, you guys are right on the front lines in carrying that torch forward and trying to get through all the noise. I mean, it's harder now. There's so much more. We didn't have social media at the time. Like the only source was like the radio. Do you remember the radio? <laughs> like, you know, financial, um, you know, radio and it, like, I don't think CNBC was even. No, up. it was Wall Street Week on Friday nights. Wall Street Week on fr- P- like PBS Wall Street Week, right? Yeah. Was it PBS? Louis Ruckheiser. And Look, I Ruckheiser, yes. I couldn't like, watch the Knicks on Friday night because we only had one TV and my dad wouldn't let me watch. So my sister's laughing now because she remembers. Didn't go downstairs on Friday nights because that was dad's hour. But so all of you are, are I mean, your job is even harder. And, you know, and even more important because, you know, this is the new generation you, you, to, 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 to educate them, to t- be stewards of their own financial future. It's not easy. I've got three kids of my own that, and they don't listen to me really much. But so, <laughs> I, you know, it's like I have a little bit of cred for like what I did here. But um, thank you for what you're all doing. And thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to, to share the story. Some housekeeping items before we go. We'll put links to several of the books and resources that Amy mentioned. We'll put those in the show notes. You can find those as well as the podcast at www.ngpf.org forward slash podcast. Better yet, subscribe, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. For extra credit, leave us a review. Let us know what you like about the NGPF podcast. That will elevate us in the rankings so that our guests get a larger audience. I want to thank Ren McKino, who produces our podcast as well as the show notes every week. Thank you, Ren. Uh, I'm personally trying to get this information to Ren earlier in the week so he doesn't have to scramble, but I appreciate Ren's patience throughout. So on behalf of Amy and myself, I want to thank you again for tuning into this NGPF podcast. Have a wonderful week.